he gave me and he loved me. And he raised this life up from the dead. You know that's what he did for all of us? Take a moment. Let's not forget where we were. I'm not talking about time or location. I'm talking about the spiritual mindset that you lived under and I lived under. The activities we engaged in. Think about life before Jesus. And how it's changed since he's the center of our life now. Church, he's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be honored. He's worthy to be obeyed. And he's worthy to tell other people that Jesus Christ loves them. You may be seen. Open up to Acts chapter 11 as I continue. Verses 19 we'll start in. Acts 11 verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there was some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him... He brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Abigail stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, like always, we come before your text, before your word, with humility, Father, knowing, God, that we are mere humans. That's all Brian Martin is, is mere human. But God, by your spirit, Father God, by your anointing, We can come here, Father God, gather around the word and let it speak alive to us, afresh to us, 2,000 years later, Father God. Your word is alive and active and it is sharp. And it's able to teach us, Father God, to motivate us, to wash us, to encourage us, to instruct us, Father God, to exhort us and to... And to stimulate us, Father God, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray the text comes alive today by your grace in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And these uh, 12 verses, which correlate to about four paragraphs, if you would read this in the NIV, is really chock full with amazing grace. I have to be honest. You know, as much as you read a text and you read the Bible throughout the year and the years go on and you accumulate reading a lot, but when you sit down to study something out, especially as a pastor to teach it, you see it in a whole different light. 
it really gets more gracious. It gets bigger. It gets incredible. And that's what we have before us today. And you know, and then you start to recognize God's engineering of the spread of the gospel. You know, we take it for granted, we read the book of Acts, and we can really just take it for granted that, you know, when you and I are just here, and not realize that the very thing we just sung about, the very thing that warms our heart, the very thing that saves us, from day one, Satan tried to keep it in the tomb. So we don't know that. We just think, oh, you know, it had to get here. No big deal. You know, we get in the car. We get on a major highway. We go out to California like it's nothing. We drive around. There's a little traffic. We scream. Like, you know, the infrastructure was all, was just there. It just came out of nowhere for us to argue about. And not realizing it took a lot of effort to make life easy for us today. Same thing with the gospel. Please don't make no mistake. God went through painstaking Things to make sure you and I heard the gospel and were saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and have hope and have peace in this world of uncertainty and that we can live above the, the dictates of the passions of the flesh that were not the way we used to be. Please don't take that for granted. I try to bring that as much out as I can because we can just wake up one day and just think like we were the first one ever to come to Jesus. No, they were first called Christians in Antioch. And please understand something. I'm not going to speak about it in the sermon, but that was a negative connotation. Back in the 70s, I remember when they were handing out the little pamphlets, the tracts. We used to call them Jesus. Jesus, And they still call it. If you hand out enough tracts, you'll be called the Jesus freak. You talk about Jesus long enough, you'll be called the Jesus freak. Using a negative connotation. That's what Christian was. So when in Antioch they said they're Christians, they're followers of Christos, Understand, basically what they were saying, there was a negative connotation. They're Jesus freaks. So, long before you and I came on the scene, people have been suffering for Christ for a long time. It's a magnificent display of how Jesus, the great physician, is still going out to seek and to save those who are lost. He's going out of his way because we wanted to see something here as we get into the text. There were certain Jewish believers that only wanted to go so far. There was a border for them. They would bring the gospel so far, then after that, no further. But you see, Jesus has other plans. He always has greater plans than what we have. Jesus said to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Acts is the fulfillment of that commandment. And all that could be obstacles that stand in the way of progress... And, and God's answer to all these obstacles, and we'll get into some of these obstacles as we get into them. Our text is another example of divine genius. And, and please understand something, I, I share this with you, and I thank you for all the prayers, everybody praying for me, you know I struggle greatly with migraine headaches, trying to get to the bottom of it, this, that, and the other thing. So, I, my studies have been, uh, Pastor John has done a great job the last two weeks, but my own personal studies and uh, reflection have been limited because of this. So the text we'll read in tonight, the 12 verses, I will only speak about three verses tonight and maybe just streamline a little bit for the sake of my uh, uh, mental energy, to be honest with you. So I, I thank you for your patience, amen. I really appreciate everybody's prayers. So we'll just be going through three verses tonight and I'll probably be here at six o'clock now because I said that. So we'll be all be sleeping soon. God's design, he sends the Spirit of God down on 120 that would gather in an upper room 
hiding out of fear of their life. And he wants to get this message of a resurrected, crucified Savior to the world, to the whole known world. And the obstacles that are against that are many. The foes that are against that, understand something, Satan is against that. That is his mainstay. His existence is found in trying to usurp the authority and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what he told Jesus in the wilderness? If you would just worship me. That's his whole game plan. Worship me. But there's a problem. Jesus is in the way. Satan will do everything to stop people from hearing the gospel. We have a classic situation taking place in this text tonight. I'll bring it out as we get into it as, uh, tonight and during the weeks. But you've got to remember, God is the great engineer. You know? and, and I thought of uh, an analogy for this. You know? And I remember being in Rome. I've been there several times. And I can remember seeing a Colosseum. But one of the things that, that grasped me out of Roman architecture and engineering was the aqueduct. Now, if you're not too familiar with these things, they were able to bring water from over 100 miles away, over gorges 500 feet deep, sometimes a quarter of a mile long. And they were able to get this water, steady flow. They're still there. They're still operating. And the gradual change from over 100 feet might have been only two feet, a gradual change. Precision. The stone was cut with precision. You see, they were going to build their city. And guess what? Nothing was going to get in their way. Landmass wasn't going to get in the way. Gorges weren't going to get in the way. Tribes weren't going to get in the way. Enemy wasn't going to get in the way. They were going to build their city, and they needed water, and they were going to get it there. God's going to build this city. The world's going to have to hear the gospel, and God's going to get it there, period. And nothing's going to stand in the way. You know, when I opened up in the last year speaking out of Acts, and I was preparing my introduction, I actually opened up with stating that this would be a message of, uh, I titled it, The Gates of Hell Will Not Prevail. And that's Jesus' words out of Matthew 16. That when we see Acts and we see the spread of the gospel, you see so many obstacles after obstacles after obstacles. But guess what? You can't stop it. That should be very, it's very encouraging to me. That doesn't mean we'll jump around happy all the time, but I know when I lay my head down at night, no matter what you did for Jesus, you cannot stop it. If you did anything for Jesus, if you just uttered a word, if you said someone the name, call on the name of Jesus, if you shared a little bit of your faith with another human being, no matter how minute it might be, Understand something. God uses that. Everything. Never be discouragement. Never allow discouragement to overcome. Stay with it. When I read Acts, that's what I see. Stay with it. Continue to sow good. Continue to stay in there. And that's what we have going on over here. And I want to try to bring out the mastermind himself, God, and how we all orchestrates this whole thing. It really starts in verse 19. And see how this goes back. Verse 19 is actually going back to chapter 8. 
Right? We have an interlude over there, and it says there, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, chapter 7 and 8, these men traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but the Jews. So we see this persecution. Uh, Luke is digressing. He's going back in his mind now. He's just wrote on a couple of other things from the persecution. Uh, 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 the apostle Paul got saved and he's out uh, evangelizing. Uh, a man named Philip the Evangelist, he's out because of the persecution. He's evangelizing. Peter's traveling the countryside preaching. He's evangelizing. All these great things are happening. Persecution cannot stop the gospel. As a matter of fact, it helps to spread the gospel. I'll go as far as to say is this. If there's not hostility towards the gospel, it might just die. If we got so comfortable, if your life got so nice and comfortable and convenient, and everybody said, oh, you're just like the greatest thing in the world. I love your message. Please tell me more how not to sin against God. Please tell me what I'm not supposed to be doing. Please tell me I'm not supposed to be doing it. Please, t- t- please tell me I'm going to hell without Jesus. You know, It would be nice, but that's not the way it works. People don't want to hear the message. People still are fighting against us. Persecution is still real. This church was small. It was beginning. A persecution breaks out. Stephen is martyred. We all know the story. Persecution breaks out. The greatest persecution of them all is the Apostle Paul. His name is Saul of Tarsus. He's converted. God is on the move. Nothing's going to stop the message of his son being raised from the dead of dying on the cross. Even the mother church, Jerusalem, even though it doesn't speak about it until verse 22, there is something going on over here that we need to know. Verse 22 talks about the church that was at Jerusalem. That's the mother church. This was the centrally located place of conducting religious affairs. Now that sounds like a good or a bad thing. You know, in Christianity, that might not be such a good thing. But there was the century located place. This was the, 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 the mother church. This was the starting place of Christianity. It was home to the apostles. It was home to the prophets. It was the first mega church. It's where it all started. It was where it was nurtured. It's where Christianity became stable enough to spread around the world. But it was not the place Christianity was to stay. It might have been birthed there, but it was not to stay there. But the mother church did not know that. They were still so Jewish that even those that accepted Jesus could not break away from the prejudice of sharing Christ with the rest of the world. They were part of the beginning, but God had a greater plan. Plans that the mother church in Jerusalem were reluctant to accept. We'll pick up that in a couple of weeks. But I wanted to bring that out. This great persecution, it's called the persecution. It's not just basic, general persecution. This was a wholesale, all-out attempt to rid the world of Christianity. The persecution. Their function as a word that goes before the noun. It's, it's to highlight a specific 
the persecution, not just persecution, but the persecution is to highlight a specific time and place that persecution broke out, specifically over a man named Stephen, because he said that Jesus Christ was greater than the temple. They hated that. This was religious zeal would break out against the young church. They were out to destroy it. The persecution. Humanly looking, it should have been wiped out. But it just wasn't wiped out. It began to grow. They couldn't stop it. When we speak of the San Francisco fire, we say that great San Francisco fire. Or the great war, World War II. These are, these are world-changing events. These are things that they stick in your mind. You remember them. For us, it's, it's 9-11. Probably anybody here that's over the age of 30, at least 30, knows where you were that day. I know exactly where I was. I knew what I was wearing. I knew who I was with. Am I right? There are certain things that just, that's how that persecution was. Because before Stephen got persecuted, guess what? They were living large. Things were great in Jerusalem. The, the young church, everybody was listening to Jesus. Miracles were taking place. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, persecution began. The persecution and life in Jerusalem as a Christian changed forever. Changed. See, you might not pick that up in the text, but when Luke says that, that's what he means. But this persecution, the persecution, which should have been the last persecution, if the Jews had their way, it would have been the last persecution, the only persecution, that would have wiped out the young church, was used by God to get the message of Jesus on the move. Because he didn't want it just in Jerusalem. To be sure, these men and women that left, they left out of fear in one hand, but they left with the gospel of hope in the other hand. And surely they were fleeing for their life, they were fleeing for their religious convictions, and there was fear, you rest assured, but they also carried a hope. And when they fled, they opened up their mouths and they spoke. They spoke about what Christ has done for them. And that's how it changed. And that's how it spread. They fled from one location to another, bringing hope. See, God uses persecution to spread the message the way an engineer would use a, uh, uh, a centrifuge. Am I saying all right? Uh, you know, that to spin the force, the faster it goes, the stronger the force gets. You know, the more it spins, the more force it gets. The more the gospel is persecuted, the more hardships that comes on Christianity, the more it spreads. It goes against the odds. Right after Stephen was killed, Philip, it says, went to Samaria where whole towns were saved. Peter went to Cornelius, a whole house, a whole family, his friends, his servants, all got saved. Now we see from the same persecution, the persecution, now that the gospel has traveled even as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. We're going into the Mediterranean now. We're going about 200 miles north of Jerusalem now. This is hostile territory. 
there's some Jewish enclaves over there, uh, Cyprus, Cyrene, there were Jewish enclaves over there, synagogues over there, the gospel went there, they were told these that, that Jesus is the Messiah, he has come, people were starting to believe, even some people, men that went to Antioch, this was a metropolis of a, of a pagan type, there was very little Jews up there, and uh, there's probably about 300,000 people, one, uh, one historian says, but it was pagan. It was, it was truly Greek, all Greek in culture. And that's where the buck stopped. They spread the gospel. But it stopped there. The Jewish converts didn't want to go any further. It was like, that was like, that's foreign terrain. You don't go there. That's a new frontier. This was uncharted territories for missions. That is as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. But guess what? It got there. People got saved. But there was a problem here. There were devout men and they were sharing the gospel. They had fear on one side and they fled because of persecution, but they bring the gospel of hope. But like all of us, we're limited. We bring limitations. Their limitation is they could not go further than the Jewish-speaking world. They won't go to the Greek. They would not go. They only went to their own people. They spread it. They did a good job. And they were, they were faithful to God. And they loved the Lord. They loved Christ. They loved people. They loved the gospel message. But they couldn't break down that it had to go to all people. See, that's an obstacle. That was an obstacle to the gospel. That's an internal obstacle. Do you not know there's internal obstacles to the gospel, just like you and me? Not every temptation comes from Satan. There are eternal things inside our own heart. That's an obstacle to sanctification. There are temptations and troubles within, not just from without all the time. Am I right? We're not always fighting hand-to-hand combat with Satan. Paul and Peter talks more about the flesh being problematic than Satan is. We fight internal things, don't we? Those are obstacles. These are obstacles to God and his gospel. To men are obstacles, but not to God. They're big. But verse 20 tells us something. But there were some of them... Can we get verse 20 up there? See, God has an ace up his sleeve. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. We read the ESV here, this is the ESV, the English Standard Version, but it misses the nuance, but the Greek text brings out. And the NIV gets it a lot clearer, it says this in the NIV. Some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and spoke to the Greeks. So, not to get into a little scholarly debate, these weren't Hellenists, these weren't uh, Jews that were converted to, uh, 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 I mean, Greeks that were converted to Moses or Judaism. They were just Greeks. They were non-believing Greek culture. They were pagans, idolaters. But, see, God has something up his sleeve. Some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, in spite of everybody else, and they spoke to the Greeks. 
See, there was a problem. Men were preaching and sharing, giving testimony, but they were only doing it to the Jews. But God wants to save the whole world. That's an obstacle. If I was to give a, a paraphrase on this, and I wrote it down because I know you're going to ask me for it. A paraphrase would be something like this. These men were only going to their own type, the Jews. But there were others. Not many of them. In spite of what everybody else said, they were still willing, even if others disagreed with them, even against the greatest of all odds, they were still willing to go to the Greeks. That's what the text means. That's the tension that we miss sometimes in translations. What he's saying here, in the end of verse 19 says, but they only spoke to the Greeks. It could read easily, however, God raised up certain men to go to Antioch and speak to the Greeks also. That's what the text is bringing up. That's one of the major obstacles. You know what I love about these men that God raised up? There's no name. No name. They went to a city and brought revival. This is a metropolis. There, was a, there, wasn't a, there was some Jewish presence there, but not much. This was a, 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 they had crossroads between Rome and, and the Orient, going down to Alexandria and Egypt, going all the way to the, to the south. This was a crossroads, a mega crossroads of economics and industry. And we know what goes on in a metropolis. We live in New York. We know what takes place. But there were certain men that did not care about the sin that was in the city. You see, the other ones that went and spoke to the Jews only, well, they were comfortable in that. They grew up in that. To go to a Jewish synagogue was clean. There was hostility toward Jesus, but morally, they were tight. But Antioch was morally lax. It was loose. This is urban ministry. It took certain men of no names that God raised up and said, now go to the Greeks. Don't miss it. I want you to see the beauty of it. God was not going to leave them, as I said before in my opening introduction. Jesus came to save and to seek those who were lost. And his own people were not going to get in the way of him getting his name out there and telling people of how good he is. So God raised up other men who were not intimidated to go to the Greeks, to go with their loose, moral, lax life and go there and speak to them of how good and wonderful Jesus Christ is. You had to have a stomach for this type of ministry. I shared a couple of months ago when I was out in Arizona and ran into a minister, a motorcycle guy, and he's got this motorcycle sort of outside the skirts of Arizona somewhere. But God uses him mightily. And within his ministry, there was a ministry raised up that went to the south of Arizona, and this is, this is the ghetto. This is where it's hard. And a certain type of person. And this guy was singing. And uh, he was one of the leaders. And he was leading in rap. And I was like, I don't want rap music. 
But then he rapped, and his rap was, and I shared this, it was so theologically sound. And it wasn't two or three minutes into this rap, and I, I was repentant in my heart for judging this guy. And how him and the team would go to the south in the middle of the night where no one else would go. These are the Greeks of his day, of our day. No one else was going there. That church went so far, but it wouldn't go any further. Do you not know we all have a so far, but we won't go any further? Thank God God raises up people behind us to do what? To go further. And I think about that ministry team that they were fresh off crack and heroin and prostitution. But they had the joy of the Lord in them. And they were immediately back on the street telling the very same culture they came out of about the goodness of Jesus. And there I am. I got some nerve. Uh, Again, I'm rebuked by the Lord. But that's what's happening here. Don't miss this. Luke is really bringing out, he's saying nobody would go there. Nobody would speak to the Greeks. They would go there and go to a synagogue. Yes, they go there and speak to a nice, clean Jew. But they're not going to go to the Greeks. They're not going to go to the Greek culture. It's messy. they're, They're unredeemable. Did you ever walk by somebody and think they're unredeemable? These Greeks were unredeemable, but thank goodness God doesn't see that. And he raised up specific men to go there and do the job. Surely this was going to be a lesson in frustration. These nobodies, these no-name preachers, street preachers are going to go to Antioch and the metropolis and they're going to speak to them about a dead man raised from, 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 the, from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. This is, this is going to be a lesson of frustration. Sooner or later, this is going to be a, a I told you so moment. These Greeks are beyond redemption. But something happened that wasn't in the script. Something was guiding them. Something was with them. Somebody, something in verse 21 says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. They weren't relying on the mother church. They weren't relying on what other people were doing. They went and they spoke to the unspeakable and God showed up. We forget about that part of the equation. God was with them. When you were converted, whoever told you about Jesus, the hand of the Lord was what? Was with them. It wasn't their great reasoning powers that got you saved. It wasn't their great zeal or their prayer life or they fasted until they almost fainted of starvation that got you saved. They went where others wouldn't go, and the hand of the Lord was with them. That's the way it is. You see, a couple of no-name nobodies with no titles, no apostolic blessing, no earthly credentials, took it upon themselves to share Jesus. That's it. And God blessed the work. There was genuine fruit. I can't wait to speak about Barnabas when he gets there. And I'll speak about that next week.
But this is a this is a valid ministry. You see, church is not where people gather. Church is where the Holy Spirit is. Where the Holy Spirit is, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. You say, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you a story. Uh, It's sort of like an analogy. It's like the wind. The wind blows to when the wind blows from. You don't see where it's coming. You don't see where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, you just show up and you start preaching. You just show up and you start sharing. You just show up and you start telling people your testimony. God does the rest. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. People took it upon themselves. And you can rest assured as I tried to bring out the best I could is that the ones that weren't going and were only going to the Jews without a doubt put up a hard time with these men for going to the Greeks in Antioch. Because chapter 8 to chapter 12, that's all it's about. This hostility towards the gospel. Even Peter had to have a vision. Peter had to have a vision. Peter should have known this. but God had to come and give him a personal visitation, a vision, to get him to go to Cornelius' house. The whole tension. It's it's written into this whole text over here. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. Persecution again in chapter 12. In a couple weeks we'll be speaking more about persecution. And I don't want you to miss this. They didn't cherry pick certain truths above others to make it appealing, like so many people do today. The NIV says it better. It says, they shared the good news of Jesus Christ. I love this church, but please hear me. We have to make sure that we never forget that the testimony of our faith is good news. It's the only good news this world has. I am so excited to be where I am at my age in this world for such a time as this because beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'll speak to anybody out there. There is nothing better than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because any other religion or philosophy out there is going to tell you, you have to do something better for God to accept you. As a Christian under the enlightenment of the Spirit of God and of the truth of the testimony of Scriptures, I know I can never be what God demands. All my eggs are in one basket. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. They shared good news. You know why? Everything about Jesus is good news. You don't cherry pick. You don't have to dress Jesus up. You don't have to try to make him sound better than he is. These were not charismatic men with big uh, missions funded by large churches. They paid their own bill. This is a grassroots movement. And it says the hand of the Lord was with them and many came to the Lord. Many. How God does this. The ministry I speak at, calling for Christ, it's uh, professional umpires. And this is how it worked. A whole culture of umpires. 
And uh, I was just speaking to a couple of them the other day and a chaplain that's been a chaplain and, and a major league umpire, major league chaplain for major league baseball teams for 30 years. And 30 years ago, every team had a chaplain. But the umpires had nobody. Now, this is what God did. God took two backslidden umpires who played on a bar team softball, put them together, cleaned them up spiritually. They got an idea when they came back to the Lord. They both came back to the Lord for different times, different venues, but they got together and said, you know, I gave my life back to Christ. Two, two major league umpires. They said, we got to do something. We, we got to bring this to other umpires. And God reached out into that whole subculture, because umpires remind I know that that's a subculture of life. There's a lot of them. Strange life. And God raised these two men up. And I've watched it. It's 15 years in the ministry. I'm part of their ministry for 14 years now. And I've watched how they've reached into the major league umpires. And I can tell you there's probably about 25 that I know personally that are born again. Now there's only, I, I think there's 80. Maybe 82. But that's what God did for these two guys that were on a softball team, that were backslidden under their own confession, that they came to the Lord different times, and they put their hearts together and said, we've got to do something. And now they reach into the, the, the minor league umpires, and they do retreats, and these are the things I go and I speak at with them. And they do retreats, and they do outreaches. they got prayer thing network going on. It's 24-7 they got this thing going on. And I'm amazed, because you see... Those chaplains that went to the major league baseball players, they stopped there. They didn't go to the umpires. But guess who did? Jesus did. He didn't ask permission. These are two men, there was no church behind them. After they got everything together and they tidied it up, they did reach out and they got uh, the right hand of fellowship from a, from a from a local pastor to support them, to have an umbrella church over them. But this is the point I want to make. It's a beautiful thing to see how God operates. That was no obstacle to God. God saw a need. See, God wants to use you and me. He sees needs around us. And we can be no name nobodies, and God can use us right where we are to start a prayer meeting, to start a small Bible study, get two or three people. You get, them in, you get them in a firehouse. You get them in the police station. You get them in the gym. You get them at the AA meeting. You get them here. You get them anywhere. You say, let's pray. 15 minutes. We'll watch Pastor John do this wonderfully at his job. That's all it takes. And then the hand of the Lord does the rest. Application. We need to cultivate uh, an attitude of resistance against feeling rejected. None of us in this room know what persecution is. We know it to be yelled at, maybe slapped at, maybe a Bible thrown back at us, maybe a couple of things like that. But as far as persecution, we, we have no idea. You know what we are? Our feelings get hurt. And I'm rejected. They didn't love me. They didn't love my Jesus. <laughs> And I'm going to go take my tail, I'm going to go crawl into bed, and I'm going to cry, and, and, and I'm never going to talk about Jesus again. 
And you can go to churches today and we got a lot of wounded Christians who don't talk about Jesus anymore because their feelings are hurt. Get over your feelings. Not about us. Do what they did. You get persecuted in one city, go somewhere else. If you're running with fear in one hand, run with hope of the gospel in the next hand. The hand of the Lord is with us. Don't ever allow our feelings. That, that is evangelism killing our feelings. Get out of it. Because if you're feeling good about it, you might be taking a little too much glory. It's supposed to be about Jesus. I'm doing good. I'm sharing my faith. Yeah, I got another notch under my belt. And you know, I'm doing all right. And it's like, before you know it, you're preaching yourself and you're not preaching Christ. What about nobodies? All they had was faith in God and willingness to share the good news. They saw Jesus not as a threat. Too many Christians see Jesus as a threat. Like, no, you speak about Jesus as what he is. He's good news. Do you have to be re? Do you have to be convinced of that? He's good news. When I open up my mouth to speak about my faith to somebody, I'm, I'm bringing good news. I come to any time I speak to anybody about Jesus in any small way. I open up my mouth as though they need this more than life itself. When I go into a text of scripture, when I'm going to preach, I want to preach it as though you need this. Your life depends on this. You would not make it if you did not hear the words of the text today. You know why? It's the word of God. It's good news. I was thinking about this when we were singing that song. My soul must sing of the beautiful one. That's what those nobodies did when they went to Antioch. When they went to the Greeks where nobody else would go. When they went to the inner city that had no religion, that had no morals. This is where they went. Because their soul had to sing about Jesus. When you love Christ and you share Christ, it's what Paul says. To some it's it's life to life. It's like a symphony. I remember the day I sat in that church and, and they were talking about Jesus. It was like a symphony of grace. And of course, to others, it's the smell of death. And personally, it's wonderful to see others go further than ourselves. We all bring our limitations. And we should always be praying that God raise up others to go further than what we ever could do, both in ministry, in life. Our children should do greater things than we did. I mean, that should be the heart of all of us. We should want everybody, friend and family and congregation, to go, be the best they can. We're going to pick up on this theme, uh, Barnabas, the encourager next week, to really go out of our way to hope people are going further than us. Not be intimidated what other Christians are doing. There's another church. Praise God. Another church. There's plenty of sinners in Bay Ridge. There'll be a hundred churches in Bay Ridge. Who cares? Let revival come. Let every church get a hundred people, two hundred people. Let there be three hundred churches. As long as Christ is honored. Amen.
Father, we thank you for the word, Lord God. We know we're just touching upon the text tonight, but I ask you, Father God, to take the nuggets that were spoken, Father God, that within the text that Luke is showing us, Father God, that a bunch of nobodies who knew somebody, the Savior, is all that counted. They were not intimidated by the culture in Antioch. They were intimidated by the lax moral sin of the Greeks. They weren't intimidated by the high philosophy of the Greeks because they knew Jesus is better than anything the Greek philosophers could ever give. God, I pray that we simply go out and tell, I, I'm, I lay a challenge before everybody in this church today that you will tell somebody, if not several people this week, your testimony. Don't Just tell them good news. Let good news fall out of your mouth in Jesus' name.